This is Luke Gygax. Do you believe that the mechanics of combat are not the key to heroic fantasy and adventure games? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Save or Die. smoking with my vaporizer here <laughs> i swear to god you can you can listen to old episodes and you hear this constantly yeah <laughs> <laughs> the clicking of the old zippo welcome everybody save or die number 106 the trio are back <laughs> i'll be a briefly kind of sort of do a kermit flail here yep. <laughs> <laughs> liz is back and jim has concred Of course, DM Mike here, and as noted, I am joined by the DM who wears English leather, DM Jim. (laughs) Drakkar Noir, just in case you really need to know. (laughs) And also the only DM that is married to DM Mike because of Funky Comedina, DM Liz. Hello, hello. Oh, I miss you, Liz. Oh, I missed you guys too. Uh, she probably won't be on the next one, though. We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see if I can get if I can get the rest of my crap done in time. But right now, I've got a, a little bit of downtime, so I can I can make this one for sure. Oh, I, I got to tell you something, Liz. The other day, when you put your BFA stuff up and asked for comments, I just jumped right in, not realizing that Darlene was in the group. <laughs> so as soon as Janelle and Darlene oh, started critiquing your work, I shut the hell up. I, 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 hugged and fl- everyone. <laughs> I hugged and flirted a little bit with Darlene at, at Frank Mincer's party at GaryCon, and I got in and got out with my win, so I didn't want to screw it up. <laughs> well, everybody's input was really valuable, and I appreciate all of you guys who stepped up to give me critiques. Um, once the exhibition actually goes live and everything, I'll put everything up again on my page and be able to see some of the changes that i made so hopefully it'll all be good knock on wood knock on wood but this episode we're talking about magic users or rather the using of magic in classic D. <laughs> now the kermit flail yeah! <laughs> but first what did we do with david What have we been doing? DM Jim? (laughs) Besides contracting a CDC incident at (laughs) GaryCon? 
Um, well, I, I got back from Gary Khan. It was fantastic. I don't want to make the whole show about Gary Khan, so I'll get in and get out as quick as I can. Um, we got to unveil something at Gary Khan. There's been a, a group of us that a secret society formed called the Dungeon Crawl Cabal, a group of writers that uh, Joseph has contracted to write tournament adventures for all the uh, world tour this year. And we got to debut and roll out the first one of those, uh, the Hypercube of Might, a Gary Khan to uh, great acclaim and success. Uh, so collaboratively written by myself, Daniel J. Bishop, Dak Ultimax, Stephen Newton, Jeffrey Tedlock, and Adam Miskevich. Wow, I can't believe I can do that now, not mispronounce anybody's name. And a, and a team of judges, myself, uh, James Smith, uh, Roy Schneider, and Jen Brinkman running two tables. And uh, it will be available, it should be in a week or two now, uh, for a free PDF download to anybody that wants to run a DCC World Tour tournament at their game store. Sweet. So, so there was that. Um, we played a little MCC, and uh, the uh, big announcement that we were talking about before we were on air, DCC Lankmar rolled out, so you can now play Fritz Lieber DCC. Um, uh, none of that's for sale now, but they released the first uh, module as a Gary Khan exclusive, and in a few weeks, I imagine you can get it from your local retailer on the store. Written by a uh, friend of the show, Manly Mike Curtis. So it was a, a hell of a convention. I worked the shit out of that convention. Cool. Yeah, you were saying there was like 900 people there? I, I just asked Dale uh, uh, last week, and he said that uh, he thought between 850 and 900, which would be up a couple of hundred attendees from last year. It's definitely at max capacity now. Yeah, I bet Sheldon. you guys were bursting at the seams at the lodge. Well, right. I, I was telling you earlier that they uh, to mitigate that they had put a heated tent out back for extra gaming area and i think luke's initial plan was that was going to be for pathfinder society but they kind of turned their nose up at it so friday it sat empty and saturday the dcc crew took it over it was the dcc tent awesome <laughs> well cool a lot of fun we got to get to to gary con one of these days liz Someday we will. We next year we we've will. Got to, we've got to figure out a way to make it happen because I was constantly barraged by people complimenting uh, very kindly. Save or die. Oh, that's well, nice that's cool. to hear. Including a dude yeah. that said, "I thought you'd be six foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, you're off by about thirteen inches. But <laughs> yeah, I am See? six foot eight, but I'm wearing special pants. <laughs> I was gonna say. Mike got a similar remark once when we were in medieval reenactment. Someone from from the Arizona kingdom who had only known Mike online and, you know, hearsay. And he finally came over to Texas and got to meet Mike face to face for the first time. It's like, I thought you'd be a lot taller. Her <laughs> Prince Siegfried? Yeah. I. That's right. No, look at the pictures. I'm the shortest and oldest dude in virtually all of them. Cool. Well, How about you cool. guys? Uh, Liz, over to you. <laughs> what have I been doing in gaming recently? Not a damn thing. <laughs> BFA girl? Yes, Mike's gotten to go to all the second edition game sessions. and One. Yeah, well, One there have been second. others. <laughs> you, just, you just decided, no, oh, I don't want to go. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, I, I've been staying at home, working on my stuff, and the exhibition is pretty much this coming week, although by the time this actually gets put up, the, it'll either be in the middle of happening or it'll have just ended. Um, it's only going to be up in the galleries for a single week, 
and we have a pictures pictures or it didn't happen that's right we have a reception on wednesday which i kind of have to be at and mike will be there with me my parents are coming up just to be there at the reception and see me which means i've actually had to go into the guest bedroom and clear up all my miniature stuff off the bed and everything because they'll actually be staying as guests That's right. We usually use the guest bed in the bedroom to lay out Mike's All Things Zombie two-hour war games setup. And Colonial Adventures. And Colonial Adventures. But, yeah, it's usually there's minis and, you know, whole terrain. setups. Yeah, terrain. Everything is on the, on the bed. Darn those guests. But, yeah, I think our parents would probably take a dim view of being told, hey, you guys can stay on the couch. Because yeah. I'm in the middle of a game and I can't move the board, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's not going to work. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Come on, Mike. They gave you their only daughter. That's true. All right. Well, what have I been doing? Well, What have uh, you been doing? Our 2EDM has killed the Spelljammer campaign right in the middle of the, the, the Big Beholder adventure, which was kind of dip- disappointing. But anyway, started a new one. Um, I rolled up a half ogre, fighter alchemist. <laughs> he's not really an alchemist. He just thinks he's an alchemist. Okay, so he makes to. up lots of potions and unguents and stuff for the party members to make them feel better. Mm. I had I had to look that up today. Unguent. Unguent is apparently an oil or ointment. I did not know that yeah. prior to today. That and uh, Mead has joined the game again, and she's playing a gnome paladin. And she keeps trying to convince me to, to that my character should let her gnome ride on his shoulders and do the master blaster thing. <laughs> but I've held out so far, so I still say you should, you know, offer instead to do the X Men fastball special. <laughs> yeah, I I could get into throwing her gnome across <laughs> the room. I, I could definitely do that. But, of course, the other big gaming thing was the Victorious Kickstarter, which ended a couple of weeks ago. It was just a hair under 20 grand. And I wish to thank everyone for their support and their consideration. I, I will do my best to make sure that the writing is up to your expectations. Um, the rulebook is done. I just now need to do the stretch goal supplements. But those aren't going to be too hard. And I should have those done in the next month or two. So, Which gives me something to work on while Liz is working on her stuff so that I don't drive her nuts and she ends up having to murder me. And that's a good thing for everyone. Hey. Oh, indeed. I got, I got Tyler again this Gary Con. I got to pal around with Steve Chenault a little bit. He actually knows who I am now, I think. He doesn't think I'm accidentally some old TSR guy or anything. But uh, <laughs> So so with with Steve's foreknowledge and complicity, I went up to Tyler and asked for my uh, proof copy of Victorious that Mike Stewart said I could have. And Tyler started tearing the poor booth apart trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> poor Tyler. Uh, I am a bastard. <laughs> now watch when it's actually available jim's not going to go up and bug him anymore oh my my copy will get lost in the mail or something <laughs> or something like no i don't want it i just wanted to see you had it at the table okay that's all i wanted to know <laughs> no no we're good <laughs> so yeah it, it's been gaming light you know other than that stuff and some writing um 
starting the new 2e campaign haven't been able to get to yeah you know, i only it's only met once since the show i recorded with vince the side adventure with uh james spawn and uh that's really been it so shall we see if there's any emails why yes we shall get down get down get down get down the save or die email hot tub time machine come here you scrumptious little beauty here i go once again with the email every week i hope that it's from a female oh man following emails have been edited for length and content. All emails. right. Yes, we do have emails. We've got quite a few emails, but we'll try to keep it down to a dull roar. Um, starting <laughs> Just off, as we were catching up with our emails, we had to go on a semi-hiatus, which doubtlessly has allowed them to build up again. I, I think we're just destined to always be behind. Mm. But it's a good problem to have. Indeed. All right. Our first email is from Albert Ramirez, and he says, Hola, mis amigos. Does a hammer of thunderbolts return when thrown? Returning is not mentioned in the 1E or 2E DMG or in Osric. What about OD&D? Assuming it does return, will it return when it hits a target or only when it misses? How long does it take to return, and what happens if the thrower is incapacitated in the meantime? Thanks for answering my email, Albert. Albert. Albert, thanks for the question. I totally forgot to look it up in od <laughs> I can I, tell you what we did, and I can tell you what it says. Okay, well, tell first us. tell us what it says. It says nothing about returning <laughs> in any nothing. version of the rules I could find. Not, even, not in od and Huh. Nope. And but that didn't stop us. <laughs> we just, no, it was a given. If you had the the girdle and the gauntlets, yeah, it it assumed it came back because well, it was inspired by Thor's hammer. So in my brother's campaign, that was the prerequisite. You had to have the whole rig. If you had the whole rig, boom, it came back, whether it hit or missed. Yeah, I always played it. It came back in a round, and uh, if you were unconscious, it just came back to your hand, even if you're just laying there unconscious, you know. But that's how I always, I always ran it. I mean, too many Marvel comics. No such thing as too many Marvel comics. What if you threw it, and before it had a chance to come back to you, you were killed? Would it still come back to your dead body, do you think? Or would it just sort of drop down? I'd say it would come back to your body. It would just be there. Mm. Except if you were dead, it would change into a walking cane and drop. <laughs> yeah, waiting for a surgeon, to a lame surgeon to pick it up. Although talking about this, it, the image that first popped into my head was from Red Dwarf. Remember with those Seeger missiles? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that they got to put in the closet. <laughs> and then later they open the closet and the missiles hop out and still chasing them. I just I mean, picture the hammer doing that. I think it's solid DMing if you rule in favor of the cool thing happening in the absence of a rule. Specific yeah. rule. I mean, That's pretty much how I feel. Exactly. I don't know how helpful that was, Al, but <laughs> we did our best. So, yeah, in your campaign, it does what you wanted to do. How's that? That's a good answer. Can't get more classic than that. All right. Our next email is from Stephen Parks. Hey, and Steve. he says, hi, D&D classicists. <laughs> Ooh, I am a... Cool. Hmm? 
classicist. I am a longtime listener to the podcast since episode number one and enjoy it immensely. I just listened to episode 103 on skill systems and had some thoughts. Here we go. I've heard Mike lament how limited his character is in the second edition game in which he and Liz regularly participate. I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) As one who has played second edition since 1989... I'm not sure his DM is handling non-weapon proficiencies correctly. Oh, Chase, you just got called out. (laughs) Can I quote you on that? (laughs) Yes, the rules occasionally state that unless you have the proficiency, you cannot perform the action. As, for example, with swimming, PHB, page 64. However, the general explanations of non-weapon proficiencies assume that non-proficient characters can, in fact, attempt the action, unless otherwise stated. First, the explanation of non-weapon proficiencies, pages 54 to 65, follows the explanation of weapon proficiencies, pages 50 to 52. Citations. Ooh. The rules for weapon proficiencies explicitly state that characters who are not proficient with certain weapons may still attempt to use them, albeit with a penalty, page 50. It seems to me this sets the precedent for how to handle proficiencies in general. Second, the explanation of non-weapon proficiencies often reference non-proficient characters performing the same action as the proficient characters. Thanks again for the excellent podcast and all the work you all put into it. Keep up the phenomenal work. Best, Steve, Irvine, California. Thanks, Steve. And I shall send your email to DM Chase. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I know what he'll say. Uh, Chase will go... Story trumps rules. And Mike will say, bite Bah. Bah. <laughs> bah. <laughs> bah. But thanks for the ammo, anyway. <laughs> In the ongoing fight. <laughs> All right. Our next letter is from Jonathan Perkel. Jonathan! Woohoo! Hi, Saver Dies. <laughs> <laughs> I like classicists better. Yeah, you would. <laughs> Enjoyed the discussion of taverns in episode 104. I've always wanted to name a tavern the Owlbear Arms, just so when the PCs come to town, they can see a sign that reads, Right to Owlbear Arms. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll be here all week. DM Perky. (laughs) God, Jonathan. Um, And have the doorway doorway carved to look like an owlbear with its arms out. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quit your day job, Jonathan. <laughs> you gotta hand it to him. It was funny. Uh, uh, anyway. Next yeah. email. <laughs> next email. <laughs> All right. Our next email is from Raul de la Garza Third, otherwise known as Angelic Doctor. AD. <laughs> And he says, DMs Mike, Liz, and Jim. Concerning the use of outdoor survival in an OD&D game, as suggested within the pages of the books, most notably in U&WA supplement, Underworld and Wilderness Adventures, I have attached a document you might want to consider as you collectively form an opinion on the matter. In the interest of full disclosure, the author of the document may be found here. And we have a link, which we will 
set up in the show notes. Um, But it's the Initiative One blog spot blog page. So... Which we've mentioned before on the show. Yes. Anyway, he says, please let me know your thoughts. Many thanks. DM Raul, a.k.a. Angelic Doctor on OSRgaming.org. So, I haven't had a chance to look at much of anything these past few weeks. Have either of you guys had a chance to I, look? I haven't, I, I haven't been out of bed all weekend except to do this podcast. So, Mike? <laughs> I, if I looked at it, I forgot. Can we pause recording and take a quick look? Let's do that. <laughs> I'll wave the magic wand. Because I've made a single PDF file out of all the posts from my original D&D setting series. It is available as a publicly accessible Google document. Kudos to James Mishler for the excellent map that is on the first page. It's really cool. Dude just took the uh, board from Outdoor Wilderness Survival and turned it into a little mini D&D map and uh, gives uh, in the PDF that we'll put the link to on the webpage, gives a nice little history of uh, Gary Gygax's pre-World of Greyhawk map that he used when he was playtesting D&D. How like the west coast of America was the play of stone where you had cavemen and necromancers in the hills and cool stuff like that. So nice, okay. nice little starter campaign setting anybody could use and a little history to boot. Well, thanks for the email, Angelic Doctor. Um, looked at the f- document. He has it as a PDF, which, um, again, we will post for people to download on the show notes. Um, I guess you can't get much older school than that because it's pretty Greyhawk. Well, I particularly liked the place where it talked about, you know, a lord and his castle. And it talks about how in OD&D, you know, you can just randomly come across a fighting man as you, you know, find a castle who will come out and challenge you to joust. And I had forgotten all about that, quite frankly, um, in the rules. Yeah. That, date, that dates it right there, because there are no non-gender specific fighters. You're going to run yeah. into a fighting man. It was a fighting man, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it points out that's rather Arthurian, actually. <laughs> Malorian? Yeah. <laughs> Mallorian, like- I guess. PCs yeah. being challenged by random knights and <laughs> none shall pass. And mentions you can expand that, you know, including being insulted by dwarves, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's all kinds yeah. of things. And using the outdoor survival maps, it's literally like almost like, you know, the whole Whisper and Venom set. You know, you've got this small bit of wilderness that's your campaign area. You don't have to design a whole world. You've got just this valley or forest area and go from there. Although when he does talk about occasionally possibly being challenged to an aerial joust, I just think of the joust video game and the ostriches. (laughs) ostriches. And and I know it's not, it's griffins and that kind of thing, but that's just what immediately pops into my mind. It's like, doot, 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 doot. Probably because of Ready Player One. It is. (laughs) Had that joust game in the middle of the Tomb of Horrors. Oh, this gets me around to a Mia couple I should have done on air. Um, All that bitching I do about campaign settings and how much I don't like them. Well, this mm-hmm. is this is a nice little concise eleven-page campaign setting which I like. But at GaryCon, DM Todd, I collect some of the old Dungeon Crawl Classic stuff. DM Todd found one a dealer had for sale. So yes, DM Jim 
spent 60 bucks on a 700-page Dungeon Crawl Classics campaign setting, White Rock, White Rock Castle. The thing is like in one of those Avalon Hill books. It weighs more than the DCC book weighs. 700 pages of campaign setting that I'll never use, but I wanted for my collection. So I was about to say, 700 pages of yeah. campaign? Wow. I saw the photo of the box. It looked like, to me, that they deliberately styled it to make it look similar to the old Avalon Hill bookcase games, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> Again, very retro. Yeah, but I get on here all opinionating one day and then do something completely opposite the next day. <laughs> campaign well, settings are crap. I just bought a campaign setting. <laughs> a big one. But you don't yeah. intend to use it, though. You, you're going to read it for, I assume, I, ideas. I might use it if I have a sudden need to stun a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Purely self-defense. And besides, it's DCC. You, you kind of have to get it. But but this uh, link we'll provide is a nice, concise, little 11-page campaign setting with all the stuff you need to know. Map, locales. And very, very old school. All right. Well, next email. Okay. Our next email is from DM Kojo. <laughs> Kojo! I just he saw him. <laughs> Greetings, Sodcasters. Sorry for being gone for so long. First, I am really looking forward to GaryCon in March. <laughs> Yes, that's how old these emails are. <laughs> and playing in DM Jim's game again. It's a pity Mike and Liz can't come up for it. It is a great con. He dude, the dude, I, he's like the size of a hill giant compared to me anyway. And his explanation for why he hasn't been sending emails is, I thought I overdid it. You guys were getting tired of me. I'm like, <laughs> I'll kick your ass, man. Write, <laughs> write us again. Nah, never, Mike, never overdo it. <laughs> He says, my question is about converting classic D&D to other TSR games. I know the first edition DMG had rules to convert to Gamma World and Boot Hill, but have you ever tried to convert classic D&D to other games like Metamorphosis Alpha or Star Frontiers? I think a campaign like that would be rip-roaring fun and very much in the Appendix N feel. Love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks, DM Kojo. Hmm. I had not thought about converting to Star Frontiers, quite honestly. When I've ever done it in the past, I'm ashamed to say that other than Gamma World and Boot Hill, um, I didn't use other TSR games. I usually went to like Traveler or Aftermath or that sort of stuff. I agree, the idea of the genre jumping, well, like uh, the Red Queen adventure at north texas a couple of years ago where they kept rotating you know it was basically people kept jumping tables yeah oh yeah the adventure was actually specifically designed to do what he just said yeah starting with cave master then what was it dnd boot hill top secret and was it star frontiers i don't remember anymore i don't remember but yeah it was basically it was doing kind of a chronology thing and you were just going Everybody is at a table playing one of the games, and then you do musical tables to move over to the next game setting. So it's kind of cool. I live for this stuff. I love it. Uh, as you know from past what have you done in gaming recently, I once subjected my post-apocalyptic players to an entire evening of bunnies and burrows by transmitting their minds back in time <laughs> into bunny bodies. Ha, ha, ha. So we kind of uh, took DCC and Bunnies and Burrows and meshed them together. And I just read uh, in the last six months or so in my post-apocalyptic campaign, God, I can't talk, uh, 
instituted uh, patrons and spellability. I'm sorry, wetware programs. The global AI <laughs> embeds a wetware program in your brain, you know, for, because, for post-apocalyptic spell effects. So I, I love that kind of genre mash. Because the computer is your friend? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when it's a weather control satellite network that can cause earthquakes with tractor beams, hell yeah, it is. <laughs> Skynet. <laughs> Who needs Terminators? It's got <laughs> tractor beams. All right, well, thanks for the letter, Kojo. And yeah, it's... Actually, um, I've mentioned it before, I'm sure, on the show, but back in the early 80s, I think it was GDW, one company put out the Thieves World. It was the first Thieves World supplement, and it had like 14 different rule sets, you know, conversions from everything from D&D to Chivalry and Sorcery to RuneQuest to Traveler. How would you do Traveler? Well, I guess you could. I mean, it's science well, fiction. There's so I- many weird stuff that you could find in Thieves' world. You could easily find someone from the future hanging out there. Makes about as much sense as, you know, war gods wandering around or something. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's easy. In D&D, it's alternate prime material planes, which are right there in the map Gary put in the player's handbook, right? So every mm-hmm. alternate prime material plane could be a game system and travelers even better it's just whatever planet it's like star trek you pull up to the roman planet you pull up to the caveman planet yet another planet that looks exactly like earth <laughs> it's amazing so yeah cool cool concepts all right and our final email for this show is from ian ian, ian says just listening to the last show new year new hot tub You were talking about minis. I have half a dozen or so, half-painted from back in the early 80s. Never did anything with them or thought much about them until a couple of weeks ago during our weekly Metamorphosis Alpha game. One of the other players does these awesome miniatures that I think you will all get a kick out of. And he gives a link to interloperminiatures.com. He says, thanks for a great show. Blue Box, by the way. Yeah, Yay. Ian. Thanks, Ian. And I've looked on that. I noticed he has, speaking of bunnies, he has a, a line of minis on there. Was it called Watership Frown? <laughs> yeah. I w- I'm familiar with the uh, miniature guy he's talking about. There's a uh, Thunder of the Barbarian set you can get. Uh, I mean, they're named different things. Uh, well, of course. Sh- straight out of the uh, first edition uh, Gamma World modules, the chickens, the sentient chickens and the bugums. They're beautiful mm-hmm. miniatures. Cool. Yeah, I, the, it, the Thundar ones are pretty cool, too. Wasteland cool. Adventurers, I think is what they're called. <laughs> so, cool. We'll put that up in the show notes. And we have a voicemail from DN Rob. All right. Hi, Sodcasters. This is DM Rob up in Portland, Maine. Uh, through a series of non-sequitur web browsing, I was reading about Morgan Ironwolf, the iconic character created in the beginning of the D&D Basic box set. And uh, it mentioned in the sample adventure that Morgan Ironwolf is the caller. And it occurred to me, I mean, I've been gaming now since, I don't know, early 80s, nearly over 20, 25 years. I'm 47 now. And no one's ever used the caller that I can recall. I'm in a game right now, Pathfinder, and it's, you know, kind of a free-for-all, joke-telling, what we're doing, people doing stuff. Does anybody that you know of still use a caller 
in their role-playing games. Um, I'm about to start my group on a, uh, once this adventure wraps up, I'm going to start another system up with them. And I just might employ them just to see if it works. Um, so in the free-for-all, I'm taking up on this corridor kind of action. So the good old uh, Leroy Jenkins, you know, <laughs> Leroy Jenkins uh, act, action that just sort of messes everything up, even though that, that was a staged staged uh, event. Anyways, thanks for the podcast. Love it. Look forward to it all the time. And uh, keep on rolling dice. Thanks. Hmm. I've... You ever do I've, that? I've never... I've seen it done at tournaments way back in the 80s, having a caller. But I've never played in a game where the caller's been used. Yeah, I most was, of the games I've been in did not have callers. And, yeah, I mean, even when I started running them and I was pretty much using how they showed the examples in the the Holmes book as the template, we still never really had a caller. I mean, we might have started out with someone as the caller, but, you know, I'm playing with my cousins and they're not, they're not all going to be quiet while just one of us talks and says what the party's doing. <laughs> I've done it in the past year. And the reason is uh, my campaign runs in a game store where the uh, attendance is plastic. It goes back and forth. And when the mm-hmm. table gets up to like 10, 13 players and we're trying to get through an adventure, I have occasionally rolled it out where, okay, this is too much confusion. Marcos, you're the caller. Everybody get with Marcos and tell him what you do next round. And then I ask him. Just as a kind of like you know like a real judge, okay, court mm-hmm. will now come to order thing, but not not all that often. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that you know the original Brown book, and they're talking about having you know Gygax had twenty to thirty players. It seems in that kind of situation, a caller would be indispensable. Otherwise, yeah, it's just going to be chaos. Oh, well, I can't help but agree. I'm, I've been in some large games at conventions. I would get, you know, I you know, I'm not really one to speak up and put myself forward if I'm with a group of, you know, pretty much strangers. Aww. And, and so, you know, I would wind up doing virtually nothing for the game while three or four people who are always very quick to jump in with what they're doing, they're the ones, you know, pretty much getting the lion's share of the game experience. And I think in situations like that, you know, a caller would be a good idea to make sure that everybody around the table actually does get to participate and do stuff. And you don't have the three or four people who are quick to speak being the ones doing everything. Yeah. It really Especially fa- the – sorry, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I was just going to say, it really falls on the talents of the judge at a con game not to let that happen. We've all let it slide because we didn't know, but – a, a talented judge will will find the person who's not saying what they're doing and make them. I'm sorry, yeah. not make them. That was. was <laughs> You'll act now. Stop being such an introvert. No, I mean you. But you know, okay. Now, what do you do? Especially when it's a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's um. I'm afraid that's the limit of our caller. I know I ran a Call of Cthulhu tournament at a con once where I had like thirteen people. I really should have had a caller on that game. 
that was we're running the Games Workshop Trail of the Loathsome Slime. And with 13 people, I, I think Call of Cthulhu doesn't work with that big a group. But yeah, other than cons, I've never really seen it done. Good luck on your attempts. Maybe write in or call in and tell us uh, how your game goes with a caller. And where would they write in, Jim? The Save or Die podcast at gmail.com. Or call our voice line at 940-536-3763. Dude, I am on such a Dayquil high right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll go into Game On and talk about Magically Delicious Fun. Thopus the Gnome here. The Save or Die podcast is brought to you in part by a more than generous grant from me. <clears throat> Don't you mean a generous grant by Lesser Gnome Games? Same thing. I pretty much run the joint. And this one too now, come to think of it. Here. Go finish the commercial for me, Knave. You got it. Lesser Gnome Games and Miniatures. Available at RPGnow.com, LesserGnome.com, or at a friendly local game store near you. What are you doing? It's game time. I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson, is on. Game on! Magic. Using magic. Using magic spells. The idea for this episode occurred to me, I'd say probably in late January, early February, when uh, I was getting into a debate with my DM. Yeah, yeah, you know, me me complaining about something. Really? And we were talking about mag- the whole concept of magic resistance. Teleport only has a verbal component, no somatic. Look it up! <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I thought, you know, hey, just discussing magic, magic use, that sort of thing would make for a good episode. So, here we are. Hooray! I wish I felt better, because this should be my episode. I love to play magic users. <laughs> it's the fireball episode. All fireballs, all the time. Well, I know um, you, of course, love magic users, Jim, and Liz usually plays either the party magic user or cleric in most of the games I've been in. So True, true. Do you have any preference, though, Liz? What, between magic user or cleric? Yeah. I tend to prefer magic users. Um, I normally wind up taking a cleric in the cases where I do because, you know, as many people have noticed, you know, a lot of times the cleric is, you know, like the redheaded stepchild of the D&D classes and nobody wants to play a cleric. And they're always talking about how, well, if I ever play a cleric, then I don't get to fight. Everyone puts me in the back with the magic users and all I get to do is heal people and I you, think you know what I thought that for 35 years and this last couple of years I've learned how to inflict as a cleric so I don't mind clerics anymore yeah and it can be more difficult you know I have noticed when I do play a cleric you know 
as opposed to playing a fighter, especially in second edition, you know, where fighters can get so many bennies to their, you know, their damage that they can do with the amounts of specializations that they can put into their weaponry and everything. And Is it delicious. Yeah, and clerics, you know, even though they're you know, very much you know, a subclass of fighter, they can't do that. And so the cleric that I've been playing in the second edition game, or that I used to play, that I won't be playing when I finally do come back to it, because it's a whole new campaign. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> you haven't even made up a character yet. No, I haven't. Um, but yeah, when I was playing my, my cleric there, you know, I would be lucky to do a fraction of the amount of damage that our fighters would. And I also was, you know, pretty lucky to even score a hit because my my two hit, you know, despite being a subclass of fighter-ish, you know, was really, really high compared to, you know, the fighters and... You know, I'd be like a ninth level cleric, and my Thaco is still around 16. And so it can be difficult to do damage as a cleric, um, especially clerical spells. There aren't nearly as many that cause damage, and a lot of those you have to wait till you're a pretty high level before you can get them. Um, my minimum that- bar is can I wreck the adventure? with this class. <laughs> and I finally figured out how to do that with clerics too. Once I did that, I'm cool. <laughs> I've always wanted to play one of the brown the uh, strategic review illusionist. Hmm. Cuz I think the way it was designed there, especially where the say phantasmal forces was uh, more given as guideline rather than, you know, really locked down. You could get a lot of it seems to me you could get a lot of really good ingenious ways of of using magic but i've never run into anybody running OD&D anymore so i never had a chance to to play it mm-hmm. phantasmal force in OD&D is a hell of a spell if you're on the good side of the dm when you use it mm-hmm. well that's what i mean it's so vague and it's left up to adjudication that i think you could have a lot of fun with it um but talking about the clerics as liz was i think Part of the problem is, and let's face it, in D&D, considering how hard it is to heal damage from quote, just resting, every adventure party, you know, the cleric is a vital member. And part of that results in everybody kind of treating the cleric with kid gloves. No, no, uh-huh. don't get in combat. No, no, stay back there. Don't get killed. We need yeah, you. Wrap the cleric in cotton wool and... You know, don't risk them. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask but, you guys a question. In the in the 2E campaign that Chase is getting ready to redo, even though it's 2E, what level characters did you just roll up? First. Oh, really? Yeah, we're starting from first again. Okay. Well, I, um, I, I approve of that then. I was going to say, playing a magic user from first level and just getting him to fourth or fifth where he can actually start to do stuff is always a challenge. And that's really my favorite time to play a magic user is those first low-level, you know, times. I know a lot of people who do play magic users, and, you know, they don't think it's really worthwhile until they start being able to cast third-level spells. Fireball. Fireball. (laughs) 
But it's a lot of fun, really, I think, you know, being a very low-level character and everything is, is new to you and you hardly have any magic at all. And when you do find that, you know, cool spell book from the enemy mage that has spells that you can't even cast yet, but you know now, it's like, I've got this book, one day I'll be able to do this. And it's just really exhilarating to, you know, to, you know, claw your way up. And I just, I find I get bored with my spell casting characters when they get too powerful i know i know what you mean uh i played one character in my brother's campaign long enough to get him up to 24th level magic user and it was a little boring at that stage <laughs> hey and that wasn't fake playing either that was like 12 years of the same campaign to get him up mm-hmm. that high <laughs> uh, i won't discuss my junior high um 50th level magic user then <laughs> well, you may. Good for you. You, you. you may discuss him. <laughs> if he wasn't running the continent, I'd be disappointed. No, actually, he had a tower on the moon. <laughs> he was trying to convert the moon into his own personal Death Star that he'd fire lightning <laughs> from. That was, that was his big goal. Wow. See, that is awesome. I'm so glad you shared that. <laughs> but uh, But speaking about the flexibility, again, that's one of the reasons I like classic now more than advanced is I feel like the spells aren't quite as hammered down so you can be more flexible with their uses. And one of the things I've always liked is the idea of reversing spells, especially as a cleric. I've always figured, why not? If a cleric can cast Cure Light Wounds, why can't he cast Cause Light Wounds? In your guys' original campaigns, did your DMs make you do anything special about that, or did they just hand wave it? Because in our original campaign, reversible spells were just hand waved. If you knew it one way, you could cast it the other. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, you had the pl- casters, whether clerics or magic users, sitting there going, okay, well, this spell, um, read magic. Wonder what effect it would have if I reversed that. Obscure magic. Magic, yeah, or that sort of thing. At those and, mid-range levels you're talking about, some of that could really affect play. I mean, I, in our original campaign, we weren't very high level. I mean, maybe five, six. High enough that I had Rock the Mud twice. And my brother <laughs> had these Iron Golems. There was a part of the dungeon he didn't want us in, guarded by Iron Golems. No spell or weapon we've got is going to hit these things. And I just rocked them out of the floor and reversed it. And we walked right by him. <laughs> <laughs> that Iron Golem head sticking <laughs> Or, of course, the, the fun one, oh, it's an iron golem. I polymorph into a rust, rust monster. monster. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I think that's an unfortunate thing that AD&D went to where they really limit your ability to reverse spells. Though, here's a side question. Um, have you ever limited, say, evil high priests to only doing cause light wounds? As recommended in the books, in the brown books, anyway. No. Is that what it says in the little brown books? Yeah. Wow. Um, or at least that's what's inferred. And I always figured, yeah, I would allow him to do a cure light wounds on himself. I mean, but that only makes I, sense unless he's got some really, you know, bastard deity. Oh, that wouldn't let him even heal himself? Well, like this, as a sign of fealty to me, you must, you know, flagellate yourself or something. You can't heal. Yeah. 
In which case, I'm going to get killed really quick, which, you know, if that's what you want, oh, god of evil, but yeah. it really limits what I can get done. <laughs> I think what I did way back when was evil clerics were able to cast heal. However, they generally, um, their evil god required a blood sacrifice for them to do it. No, yeah, that's a good way of... A life for a life, as it were, or that sort of thing. That would be plausible. I'm sorry. I'm po- I'm so poisoned by Dungeon Crawl Classics at this point. It's it's everyday occurrence when I want to spell burn. I'm always yanking fingernails out or you know something <laughs> to juice up the spell. Although speaking of yanking out fingernails and stuff, um, in yes. classic D and D, how have y'all handled uh, spell components? Do you get very nitpicky about them? Do you? I have a system for this. Would you like to hear it? Sure. It's it's it, as a player, I will micromanage and make a big production out of material components until the judge gets so annoyed he starts hand waving it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I do. So it's kind of a see who blinks first kind of situation. I'm kidding. Um, we never worried about it back in the day unless it was something big like the diamond you have to have for resurrection. Yeah, I never really did either much. Um, Usually, if someone was playing a, a magic user, you know, I would require them to make an initial purchase. But, you know, beyond also, that... Some of that gold. Yeah, but, you know, when they got into the dungeon, I didn't make them, you know, measure out, okay, I'm using this many grams of the Belladonna, you know, powder, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I was generally pretty pretty fast and loose with it. It's like every so often I am requiring you to spend money to buy more. Beyond that, you know, whatever. <laughs> we yeah. were real sticklers for the verbal and somatic components though because that would get into the middle of a battle where suddenly somebody's mouth would get clamped shut or their hands would be bound and we would have to argue, "No, wait. I <laughs> teleport doesn't have a, a somatic component. I can still teleport out of these ropes." Yeah, I tried once. I think it was about the same time I tried that horrible fantasy languages idea from Fantasy Wargaming. But uh, I I tried to get a really detailed list of spell components and everything together, and it was just – it's too much headache. It didn't bring enough to the – at most as a DM, it was like a way to gotcha players – which, depending on the players, could be fun sometimes, but on the whole, it just struck me as kind of unfair. Again, it's like the argument with the sextant, Liz. Yeah. Um, Well, your spell requires two eyes of newt. (laughs) Did you buy eyes of newt? I knew I was coming into a dungeon. (laughs) I surely would have bought eyes of newt, would my character not? But you didn't say. (laughs) So now there's ogres, okay? (laughs) I mean, that's a game mechanic thing we could actually talk about, though, because the intent of material components was to throttle back on the out-of-control magic user as a game mechanic, right? Put some kind of a throttle on them. But uh, I don't. that's one of the rules I don't think was very well thought through because it's like mass combat. If you want to turn your D&D session into giant inventory lists and constant search for components, if that's what you want to play, great. Otherwise, it's annoying. Papers and paychecks. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I want a game, not spend two hours doing accounting. There are, like easy, sh- there are easier ways to throttle back a magic user. Yeah. Or chivalry and sorcery, where they get all their XP by researching and, and reading in libraries rather than going out and 
and uh, dungeon exploring. So, I mean, yeah, it's a way of handling it, but yeah, it just, no thanks. And of course, to be fair, I can't recall the last time I ran parties over 12th level. It's easier just to restart a game than than travel to 36th level. And I know a lot of people love that about Classic, and that's fine, but eh. Like Liz, around 12th level or so, I start to get tired of my characters or that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to rolling up a new first level character for the new campaign in Chase's game. I would have liked to have gotten to the end of that Spelljammer adventure, though. Well, yeah, that would have been, he's like, okay, how did it all end? <laughs> yeah, just to, but anyway, yeah, talking about how to the toughness of running magic users and clerics and stuff. I mean, why should what? magic users have to go through this material component when the clerics are getting, you know, they pray every morning and they get all their spells? <laughs> I was, yeah. as, as a young man playing D&D, I was always insanely jealous. I'm like, don't bitch about your cleric. He's, he woke up this morning with every spell he knows. That's right. Well, it's kind of the same sort of trap, or I feel it's a trap, as, you know, the people who in their games want to every time a fighter takes a blow, you know, that you have to roll to see if there's any damage to the fighter's armor. And if there is, you may have to go and have that armor repaired or even replaced, depending. Or how many blows does your shield take before it's unusable? And you, you know, that's... I don't want to fool with that kind of accounting in-game. When you were very young and just starting playing, did you find that you were were kind of into that? Because we were much more willing to delve into those depths of rules as young persons than I am now. I don't know. I've never never been that interested in it. Here's something for you. Oh, go ahead, Liz. I was going to say, now, planning out, you know, in-game... You know, say the sessions where we all get together and before we go out into the dungeon or whatever, and we're all kind of in the town beforehand and we're planning out, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we need to make sure that we've, you know, purchased, you know, okay, everybody go out and, you know, we'll meet back here, blah, 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 blah. I kind of get into that. But as far as in-game, you know, keeping track of how many blows my shield has taken or rolling to see if I've broken a strap on my armor every time I get in a fight, that's never really held any, you know, big lure for me. I just meant as a teenager, we could never, oh. get, a, we could never get enough crunch. Yeah, I've, I've like, never been here's, that crunchy here's, as a teenager. Some guy, our first DM suddenly showed up with this... Uh, print out of a crit table he'd gotten off whatever the predecessor to the internet was and it was like you know half an inch thick and Comp we thought, you, sir. We, <laughs> right we thought that was the coolest thing ever at, at I first do kinda, i do kind of like crit tables yeah. if, especially if they get a bit weird but then i'm one of those people who just thinks it's fantastic if i find a wand of wonder and everyone <laughs> and everyone else around me at the table is like why? You know, it's like, no, they're cool. You know? Talking th- about teen crunch, my first DM, HL, had basically you were allowed to get hirelings and um, henchmen, but you had to roll them up. I photocopied on notebook paper columns 
and got a thousand characters I rolled up over the summer and I had the stats for every single one of them. I would take the first edition DMG and the tables that they would have for, you know, NPCs, you know, their personalities and stuff. And I would make up just pages and pages of lined notebook paper of generic NPCs, all different kinds of races and classes. (laughs) 99% of them never, ever got used for anything. (laughs) See, that's the patient's ironically of being a teenager dm todd did that a couple of years ago with the retro D league where it had to be straight roles and some guy was obsessed with having a paladin with 18 double zero strength and and todd told him you you roll the characters up and you have to give everyone a name until you get it and i'll allow it and the kid sat there and rolled 89 characters at the table before he got his 18 double zero paladin wow <laughs> uh, with dice so not with a computer that's, that's dedication <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but when you're a teenager, I, I think I see where Jim's going with this. Maybe it's teenage guys, but yeah, we were definitely willing to slog our way through if we thought it got us an advantage. I, I think magic could be a lot more flexible than it occasionally is played. Um, of course, another argument is, well, when the magic user runs out of spells, you're useless. How do you all handle that? Well, if you're a dumbass, you're useless. Otherwise, yeah. you've got some rings and wands laying around, or, um, or, or maybe, I, or maybe uh, forty-five. <laughs> I am a, a tad more lenient as to what kind of weapons a magic user can use. You know, I I'm not one of those. You can only use a dagger, and that's it. You know, I'll let them use a a quarter staff. You know, or their magical staff and, you know, use quarter staff rules with it. And I will also let them do slings or, you know, things like that. Um, very simple. Yeah, very, very, very simple weapons. I was going to say, I think that gives them a little more versatility when they run out of spells. And, you know, that doesn't, then they're not just relegated to hiding behind a rock for the rest of the combat if they don't, you know, if they want to do something. Not to mention that quarterstaff can be used as an emergency 10-ish foot pole. Yeah. Hey, if you're not worried about your alignment, poison darts. Almost Mm -hmm. as good as a magic missile. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Just don't hit a fellow party member, that's all. (laughs) What are the odds of that? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's that that's always been an argument I have heard is like, well, once magic users cast all their spells, they're useless. And I've always felt that's more of your limit. That's the limit of the player playing yeah. magic user. It's not the class. I mean, I've gotten my magic user in trouble a lot of times by going out toe to toe when I'm out of spells and getting hurt and had other party members chastise me for it afterwards. It's like, what the hell were you doing out there? Let the fighters handle it. (laughs) But, you know, you don't want to just sort of sit there and do nothing and feel like you're a dead weight to the party. And I like to take take risks. I mean, it depends on what level. If you're first or second level magic user, it's your job to sit in the back and stay out of the way. Well, yeah, if you're first level magic user... 
you could be killed by just being knocked over accidentally, practically. The door <laughs> fell on. Especially if you have a low constitution and you took a hit point, you know, hit right out the gate for that. You know, you could be going around with two hit points at first level. I was about Someone to say, sneezes this, on you and you're dead. <laughs> this is classic. So you're looking at potential mages running around with one hit point. I know. It's like, you know, in those cases, yeah, you want to be extra careful. But, you know, if you're like third level and you've got, you're in the double digits of hit points, you know, I think, you know, I have no problem with getting out there and, you know, trying to help out. You know? I mean. Everybody has their favorite class and their reasons for playing it, but I love magic users, especially from working one from the ground up, because th- that first six levels, at, at, at first level, you are a complete liability. I mean, a problem for the party just to keep alive, but then fifth or sixth level is not that long to play through, and if by fifth or sixth level, you should be running the party. <laughs> There's something wrong if you're not in charge. But yeah, depending on the class, um, that does remind me of something. I have always wanted to run a D&D game where druids are like the monsters from oh, like the O-D-D. first three brown books. Yeah. yeah, It's not the tree-hugging hippies. It's the wicker man <laughs> burning sacrifices alive kind of druids. Because it always struck me as, well, that's kind of a quick and dirty way of coming up with cleric monster clerics as it were you know Mm. like that movie king arthur where they're just you know the druids all up in the woods with a blue face and a whole bunch of bowmen (laughs) yeah yeah pictish type stuff going on there's a very brief set of two novels um that brian daly wrote in the late 70s called uh, doomfarers of coromond and it was interesting partially because it was a in a way, a genre mashup. It was a fantasy world who were trying to deal with an evil wizard, you know, the stereotypical threat to the realm. So they use their wizards to summon a defender, and they end up pulling out an armored personnel carrier and crew from Vietnam. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they have to fight the red dragon come to come to devour them. So you got these guys in an M113 with a 50 cal Browning and M16s blasting away at this dragon. <laughs> but in that world, uh, there were druids, but they were all amongst the barbarian tribes, and they were all evil with a capital E. And all their weather spells and stuff were always just this really nasty... You know, not only nasty stuff, but it required human sacrifices and stuff. And I always thought that would be an interesting variant on the druid that would be fun to play. I don't think you need them to be evil, though, Mike. They can just be neutral like they're supposed to be because, let's face it, 90% of the characters are going to be chaotic and evil themselves anyway. So, Yeah, I've never liked that about druids, though, the whole the balance stuff. I, I never, never really thought that made a lot of sense. I, I, I don't mean they're not into the balance, but they just don't give a damn. My woods, you <laughs> stay out. That's that's all it needs to be. That kind of neutral. Right, right. So this is our forest. You stay out. So more of a primal, you know. I leave, you know. Animals live. Animals die. Yeah, it happens. That goes on. It happens. I, mean, I don't really care what the hell you're doing. Get out. What happens to a table full of your players when you say this guy just told them to stay out? They're going to move heaven and earth to get in. Oh yeah. <laughs> We're going to cut down that big tree of yours and make a big bonfire. (laughs) Your forest is on fire now. How do you like that? (laughs) (laughs) 
what do you mean he summoned a hundred owl bears? Ah, <laughs> that and picks. But anyway, must have come from that tavern. You just like saying picks. I do. I do. It's fun, and you know, it's the only only uh, monster that can use woad. So yeah. I'm not trying to. She p- also likes the same. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. Uh, <laughs> Badum ching. But talking about variants magic, um, have any of y'all used alchemists? Not really. Most of most of the alchemist rules that I've ever run across, with just a couple of exceptions recently, but back in the day, most of the rules for alchemists that I encountered were all kind of, I don't know, they were just sort of awkward. It was a way of the party getting cheap potions, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean... Suitable for an NPC, but if you tried to be a PC and be an alchemist, it was just, you know, kind of everything was all belabored and it just didn't really, it didn't really translate well into the adventure paradigm. Check this out. Um, When Tim Cask was running his OD&D campaign here a couple years ago, there was a player who fortunately for the player was actually a personal friend of Tim's who wanted to run a gnome alchemist illusionist. And Tim busted out, you know, Dragon Magazine versions of the two classes and invited him to have at it. And it Flim was, flam. Flim well, flam! <laughs> it kind of goes back to what we were talking about because it was OD&D. It was just a matter of educating things back and forth. I mean, he material component it a little bit where he was constantly scooping up whatever we killed. He wanted like the, you know, the, the sand cat icker and the ghoul blood and all that stuff. It was a little mm-hmm. annoying. He would constantly do that, but I mean, <laughs> Tim just shrugged and said, "Okay, go for it," and handed him the O D and D classes, and they just mishmashed it on the fly. Yeah, I generally have used the strategic review alchemist, um, or was that early dragon? Dragon number it was, two. It was dragon number two. Okay, yep. yeah, I had that available, but I've never had anybody really want to play it. Um, and I've never been in a campaign where people would let me play it, so. Although the one we're going to be reviewing on products by David Lynch was a pretty darn good one, I think. I think if it, I need a default class, somebody asked me, can I play an alchemist, rather than giving them the dragon number two one, I may start giving them this one. I agree. I, I would want to, I'd want to test drive that myself. Well, I'll save it for random encounters. I came prepared to compare and contrast. contrast. <laughs> or products, yeah. Products. Well. All right. Well, before we move to products, is there any last comments you want to make on magic? Oh, we skipped over magic resistance. Yeah, I was just about to mention that after I was sure you guys were finished. Because <laughs> that was actually what inspired this whole episode for me. My first magic user in my brother's universe, the only reason he was the chaotic good alignment was to get that pseudo-dragon and the 25% magic resistance. It was all calculated <laughs> by my little 19-year-old brain. I find it interesting that Magic resistance didn't show up in Brown Book until Eldritch Wizardry and with Demons and Titans. Hmm. And in Basic Expert, there's some comment on a couple of monsters in uh, Creature Catalog. But for the most part, magic resistance as a regular thing seems to have been an AD&D mechanic, which I guess is all right. I've never liked it. I always... I always felt like, well, if you need to make them a little tougher, you know, there's e- other ways. There's already extant ways like saving throws and 
hit points and that sort of thing. Why do you need to add a whole other category of magic resistance on top of everything else? I think it's just part of the judge-player war. <laughs> like, okay, you're defeating my demons too quickly. Now they have magic resistance, and then the player has to sit there and go, okay, I can't target him with a spell, but I can target the ground at his feet with a rock to mud, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. I guess. Too much for it's, you? Yeah, well, obviously back in the day I loved it, but now it's just kind of, eh, Every spell, get, you know, it's, oh, you're going to cast spell at him. Well, got to roll percentile every single time. Okay, now, well, it affected him. Now I got to make a saving throw. And then to see, you know, it's like a little too crunchy for me nowadays. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten less tolerant of crunch. So maybe that's part of it. See, not me. I'm like that guy out on the beach in Nam. I love the smell of magic resistance first thing in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what about using it very occasionally for rare sorts of creatures? So say when you get to demons, what made say demons different? I could live with Um, demons, dragons, golems, things that. But you see, there, that's too much to me. Already? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, example. Why have magic resistance when you could just uh, say no spells lower than 5th level casting can hurt them? Same general effect, but a lot less crunchy to have to deal with. Well, if you're talking about a matter of taste and play style, you know, whatever works for you is great. Well, of course, but, you know, that's just for me. It just seems to me a redundant mechanic that got thrown in afterwards. And I think you're right. I think it did. It was part of the... Since it was in Eldritch Wizardry, it was probably one of those things that Gary was coming up with to try to deal with certain Lord Robilar magic users who hmm. <laughs> <coughs> Yeah. Um, it sounds to me though, then, that your problem is not with the idea of resistance, but just with the way the mechanic yeah. was set up. Yeah, I think that's fair. So I, I- I think it depends on what level of campaign you're playing. Because when we were younger, we were going at it hammer and tong. And and at my age now, I just want to get in and have four hours of fun. So I have less patience for some of this, unless I get something invested in it. I mean, the most underused spell in the whole uh, player's handbook is Dispel Magic. A well-placed Dispel Magic will ruin some opponent caster's whole day. Mm-hmm. Like, Dispel Magic. Oh, but he's got magic resistance, so you're Dispel Dispelled. Never mind. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, there, there was a time, and there's a time and place where that sort of chess-like aspect of magic battles really intrigued me. Uh, and that's something that generally tends to happen in our 2E game. Um, yeah. If I'm playing a character that does have the ability to cast dispel magic, then I'm pretty much I'm rolling against the level of whatever level the spellcaster was that either made the spell that I'm trying to dispel the effect of, or if I'm, you know, fighting directly against someone else, you know, depending on what level they are and what level I am, you know, he figures out a percentage that my spell will, you know, actually fail, and then I have to roll, and my dispel magic may work, or it may not work, and, you know, the more powerful spellcaster gets to do their thing anyway. Mm. Okay. You know how my brother kept a throttle on wishes once we were high enough level that we had access to wishes? 
Mm. In, in his campaign world, there was there had been something in prehistory that had happened called a wish war, and he and his campaign basically turned wishes used the wrong way into nuclear weapons. Like if you were wishing to keep the party out of a TPK or to get healed or to teleport somewhere, you know, no problem. Uh, always depending on how you worded it, but you couldn't just sit, kick back with a wish and go, "Okay, I assassinate that guy across the continent," because you'd start the wish wars up. If you started using wishes, that you would be a rogue state, <laughs> and everybody come down on you. That's a way of handling it. As a DM, I've always just preferred totally taking the wording and you know twisting it as much as possible to mess up their lives. But you know, that's what all DMs really should do, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know how we got off on wishes. Who started that? Oh yeah, it was you did. Me. Um, <laughs> I, I used. I two, wish I knew who did that. <laughs> I used two rules. The one you just said. If it's an, if it depends on the intent. If the intent is out of order, then I will absolutely twist the wording. But I also can regard wishes as like a uh, effect of physics, where if you wish for a hundred thousand gold pieces, it didn't create the hundred thousand gold pieces. They came from somebody's vault somewhere. And or, a dragon's, or a dragon's horde, and he's pissed. Yep. Right. So to, to so to balance, keep the keep the game in balance. All right. Any last things before we talk about alchemy? I'm done. Did I mention on the episode that Liz and I weren't on uh, that you didn't seem to be completely on your game because I think part of your charm is trying to direct traffic while we go way off topic, <laughs> and that didn't happen <laughs> with Vince. No, no, it didn't at all. I was, in fact, I one time I had to go. So, Vince, what are you? <laughs> like, well, I'm looking at the module. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Sorry, man. No problem. Let's go into products. In new Dungeons and Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. <laughs> Inside me! And being completely dragon flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard, sacrificial dagger, and dice, dice, dice! TSR Hobbies, Dungeons and Dragons games, products of your imagination. Products of your imagination. Yours, not mine. And we're looking at something from. Baba Yaga Games, another great name for a game company, <laughs> by friend of the show, David Lynch. The Basic Alchemist. It's available on DriveThruRPG. It is a six-page PDF, and it deals with running, like it says on the tin, running an alchemist in Basic at Expert D&D. Speak of the devil, it's subtitled A Crunchy Little Concept with an Alternate Magic System. Yeah, there you go. I really I like, liked this. Yeah. And was it like Denizens and Delvers? Delvers. Yes, I like that that imprint name. D D. So, opinions. I really enjoyed this take on the Alchemist. And like I mentioned a little earlier in the episode. This is a variant of the possible alchemist class that I I would personally want to try and test drive for myself. Um, you get the idea of the alchemist, but it's not so burdened down with minutia that it, it becomes unplayable. Um, 
yet the way it's presented with various chemistry terms and usefulness, it actually feels like, you know, there's some chemistry going on here rather than, okay, you get this powder, throw it at a dragon, blows his head off, you know what, next. You know, it's kind of rather than, you know, magic user with a salt shaker or something, (laughs) it feels actually like its own class. Well, I love the... first sentence of the PDF where he says, The alchemist in many game systems usually resides somewhere between a potion wholesaler and a mad bomber. (laughs) (laughs) I thought of Jim when I read that. (laughs) I thought of Preston and Flim Flam, to be quite honest, (laughs) with his gnome alchemist illusionist. (laughs) Midnight bomber, what bombs at midnight? And insisting on his his wagon. Yes. his alchemical lab. His traveling alchemical lab, and the rest of the party is just constantly living in fear. Certain this thing is going to explode at any given moment. My elf helped buy one of the four horses to pull it. If in return she got to basically sit on the top of the wagon while it was traveling. And it yeah. never did blow up. So. And Flim Flam's going, oh, you, you, you all can ride on the wagon, too, if you want. And like, everybody no, else thank going, you. no, 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 <laughs> we're fine, thanks. You know, you don't have to ride that far back. <laughs> what do you think, Jim? I'd like to see it played. Um, it's a little crunchy for me, and just it's the same thing I've been talking about all episode. I would just go to Dragon 2. If I was running an OD&D campaign, I'd just go back to Dragon number 2 and hand somebody those alchemist rules, because they're much more straightforward, although they're clunky. This is a very sophisticated take on it. That's a lot of bookkeeping. I would be interested really? to see, see how it actually plays. I didn't feel like it was that crunchy, especially compared to, say, like, you know, Bard Games, The Complete Alchemist. Well, crunchy, I mean, it's it's... It's an elegant system, and there are interesting mechanics that I would like to play test and see how they actually work. So I'm 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 admiring the writing and the construction, I'm uh, including the table, especially the alchem alchemical calamity table. You know, this oh, guy, that's this, awesome. This guy's packing around more uh, potions, and he's allowed to carry for his level. What happens if he gets hit? Well, let's roll the dice and see. Which to me is more interesting than the, well, let's roll a saving throw for each potion bottle and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nah, let's just have a calamity. That would be cool. So I don't want to sound like I don't like it. It's just, it's very interesting. And there's a lot of back and forth with the judge or the DM on how this would work because you're basically deciding, okay, mage spell, now how do I turn this into a potion? Uh, what's that word for ointment and oil? Unguent? Uh, uh, yeah, potion of powder or an. Oinkment. Augment. Yeah. I guess that's part of what I like about it because it, it, it it's more creative between the player and the DM rather than, you know. Which is old school. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, with the right player, this would be perfect class. Those players that like to sit and scheme and put stuff together and are kind of into world building before their character's to a level that he can impact the world, this is perfect mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, I, when I first read it, I told Liz, you know, not only would I would like to, to have this available in my D&D game, I think this could work somebody playing in Victorious. Oh, yeah. A lot of it's very similar. Um, to open up the trench coat with the whole little lining filled mm-hmm. with vials? Vials and powders and stuff and go at it. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's great. I really do. Any other opinions? Wonderfully written by Mr. Lynch, but also art by him. Dave, you need to go get an artist. (laughs) 
and he's hey. probably going, great. Do you know any good artists who are also free? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, that's usually where the problem lies. Yeah, yeah. Is that, that the free thing getting in the way? But oh well. Like you right. said this was available on uh, Drive Through RPG. Is um, is it at a pay what you want, or is it a free download, or I, what? I don't recall. I don't think it's free. Let me look that up real quick and find out. Because I mean, if this is. You know, like only 99 cents or whatever, you know. <laughs> I can't imagine it's that much. It would be very difficult to, you know, realistically, it would be difficult to find a good artist, you know, who would be willing to do the art for next to nothing if you're making next to nothing on the sale of the... Exactly. Let's see. There's always a way. I do it myself. Well, you're an artist. <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't mean I literally do it myself. I, mean, I, I, go, I go find somebody, strike a deal, do something. But uh, this is a nice, tight little thing. I mean, it's it's in and out. Very few pages. It's very well written. I don't want to sound like I didn't like it. Yeah, save your save your vitriol for the next gazetteer, right? <laughs> no, I think I'm going to like the next one if my math is right. It's all about magic users, right? Yeah, Glantry, Glantry. Whenever we get to that. Okay, yeah, it's um, it's one dollar on Drive Through RPG, so yeah, know, I mean a box. Come on, very affordable, and you know, like we said, six pages. I really liked it. Officially I, Labyrinth Lord compatible, so you stick it straight into Labyrinth Lord, no changes. Slash BX. All right, well, are we ready to give this sucker some dragons? I am ready. Then we'll start with you. All right. I'm going to give this four dragons. Um, I'm tempted to give it more, but since I have not actually tried it out myself, you know, I don't feel really comfortable giving it a perfect score. But it sounds like it would be really neat, and I'm excited to try it out for myself. Hey, why don't you ask Chase if you can play the character Hmm. for the new campaign? It's worth a shot. Yeah. Although he might, he, I'm, af- I'm kind of afraid that he'll make me do the second edition Alchemist Rules Ooh. if I want to do an Alchemist. Well, nah, nah. And I really don't want to go there. No. Oh, I forgot about that. I'd play this ten times before I'd play that. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's like that Bard Games thing. I've got the second edition Complete Alchemist book, and it's, it's about the size of one of the complete splat books, you know, that came out for 2E. Bah! I was like, bah, exactly. <laughs> And that's one of the things that I kind of had in mind when I was saying most alchemist characters, you know, the rules for playing them tend to be very cumbersome and, you know, just, ah. yeah. it's like, I don't want to do a 2E alchemist. I don't care well, thank anymore. You. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, thank you. Okay. Dragons, Jim. Uh, I'm going to go with 3.5. 3.5. Well, I am going with four. So you get to be the hard ass this week. Oh, shocker. <laughs> so that's 11.5. So that's three. 206. <laughs> 3.8, I think. <laughs> yeah. 3.8. And at a buck, you really can't go wrong. That's You'll have right. Link on the show notes so you can go grab a copy yourself. I mean, there's absolutely no excuse for the second this podcast is over, not going and getting this. And if you play it in a game, write us in. Tell, tell us how it went. We'd like to know how it pl- actually works in play. I mean, a buck is cheaper than all about that base on iTunes right now. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Which means 
We're on the road again. We can't wait to get on the road again. <sighs> <laughs> how are we going? Since you sighed first, Liz, <laughs> how you headed down the road? I'm headed down the road with my alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> A very crunchy one? A very crunchy alchemist. Um, ah. <laughs> And I don't. I'm, I'm. I'm out of. I'm out of practice for figuring out how I'm going down the road. Like I'm. I'm going down the road. Hoping, Alchemically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down the road, hoping that this whole BFA thing will be over soon. <laughs> oh wait, can if I play this class, can my name be Walter White? Because then I'm in. I think that would be breaking the game. Badly. <laughs> Would you be asking us to say your name? Take <laughs> <laughs> it. Anyway. So how are you headed down the road, Jim? I'm going to cast teleport and teleport right back to my sickbed, which I'm so familiar with. There's very low chance of a error. And uh, I didn't have to lift a finger to do so because it only had a verbal component. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Typhoid Jim this week, I fear. Well, I'm not heading down the road at all because I wished myself to the destination, which of course alerted everyone else, and I've started the wish war. <laughs> <laughs> and that means we're out of episode 106, and we'll see you guys next episode. Bye-bye. See ya. Briark. And we're out. Yay. Yay. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Die theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.bandcamp.com. Alchemical mishaps on tonight's episode were brought to you by David Lynch. No, not that one. And Denmeister Games. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. The two of us, we would have annoyed. If you'd been in the back seat, you'd have had it with us because we just talked nonstop. The whole the six hours drive seems like it takes two. We were okay. I can do this. Is that we, Jim Ward? No, Tim. Tim. Oh, Tim okay. Cass. Um, I thought I, I thought you said Jim. So we got through okay. Chicago traffic without him having a Tourette's fit by constantly questioning the over congruence of the consanguinity of the other drivers. <laughs> I don't need no modifier to compensate It's too late, I'm sorry